guys, you got something on the way in. Uh, men's retreat at Sky Ranch, January 21st through the 23rd. I'd love for you to get that on your calendar now or at least uh, save the date for that. Uh, it's going to be a great opportunity for all of us who are men to be together, uh, learning the word, uh, hanging out, uh, getting injured, because that's what you do at stuff like that. You do stuff you shouldn't do, and, uh, but that'll be awesome. So please make plans to join us. I wanted to, I wanted to also just say thank you and give you a, a quick update on a couple things. Um, I asked last week for you to pray about two things that were happening in the life of the church on a larger level, in a sense. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, we had the Grace Care Call Campaign, which was, to, which was to call people who hadn't been connected to Grace for the last couple years. And, uh, and let me just say, I probably should have asked for prayer for myself, because my first job out of college was uh, selling office equipment. And the reason I didn't make it was because I could not stand making cold calls, right? I could not stand calling somebody at home at night and asking them if I might, not wasn't at night, but well, you get the picture. And I was, I was nervous about that. But I'll tell you, there were some really cool conversations that took place. I actually had a conversation with one lady who, uh, for 30 minutes, we talked about security of salvation and what that meant to her, and uh, it was really great. So thank you for praying for that. Also, thank you for praying for our uh, strategic mission alignment process. Um, we put together a small group of staff and elders to kind of look at where we were and where we're headed in the future, and some great things came out of that, so I appreciate that. Let's, uh, let's begin our time together in the Word in First Peter just by praying, shall we? Lord, thank you so much for who you are as our God and what you've done in our life, and we're grateful. Thank you for instructing us on how to live in your world and, uh, and how to live in the brokenness that sin has brought to it. Help us today as we hear your word and apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, maybe you were following it too. Uh, this past week and maybe over the last 10 days or so, the northwest of Seattle and above into British Columbia has been really struggling with uh, just a constant deluge of rain, just constantly raining and, and water flooding homes and washing out streets and, do, and people literally having to be evacuated. Maybe you saw some of those pictures. And it made me think about just uh, four months ago when we were hearing about the same region of the country that was experiencing that what they call heat dome, which I'd never even heard of, but it was these record-setting temperatures all the way from about 104 to 115 throughout the Northwest. In fact, I think it was at about that time that Michael and Jen Sieber and their family, Michael, our uh, executive pastor of ministries, they were living in Seattle, packing up their stuff to move here during that week, a brutally hot week for sure, right? And, uh, and so, you know, that just reminded me that, isn't it weird how hardship happens? One minute you're being deluged by rain and the next minute it's fire that has to evacuate people because that what was taking place up in the, the northwest at that point during the summer. They were evacuating people. The same people who were being evacuated with flooding were being evacuated four months ago because their homes were in uh, danger of being burned by the wildfires that had burst up because of the heat. 
And, I, and again, I, as I said, I, I thought about how that relates to suffering in our lives. It just seems like it's not comical. It's almost pathetic in the sense that is, it just happens one thing to another. And people, you experiencing that, me experiencing stuff that, that just seems like when is it going to stop at times? And I know that's all relative, right? I know that the struggles that, that I have and the struggles that you have, the suffering that you endure and the suffering that I endure, they're, they're different. And they are relative, but they are a struggle. Peter's writing to a group of people who were in that kind of a struggle. That it just felt like it just kept coming over and over. And if it wasn't one thing, it was another in relationship primarily to their faith. And in verse 13, here's what Peter wants to do. Peter wants to encourage these other believers who, were, who Peter was writing to, these believers who were probably in modern-day Turkey. And here's what he says. Look at verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, literally sends you encouragements. Now, who is this she, and where is Babylon? I think it's interesting to note that she probably refers to the church, and Babylon likely refers to the city of Rome. And here you have, in the, in the midst of all this Roman persecution that was kind of emanating out from Rome, the people who were in the belly of the beast of the persecution, those in Rome, those that, that is called Babylon here, are reaching out to those who are beyond Babylon, beyond Rome, beyond these terrible things that were happening there. And they were saying to people who were experiencing similar stuff, we're with you. We're, we're in this together. And Peter kind of concludes his message in this way. Why does he do that? Well, because the theme throughout First Peter has been, how do you live this Christian life when you're experiencing suffering? I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, maybe that's a question you've asked yourself. How do I live in the midst of all the hardship that I'm experiencing? What does it look like for me to do that? Now, I think one of the things that Peter's doing here is he's, he's going to counteract our tendency, actually our fleshly tendency, to try to take suffering into our own hands and and. And not just take suffering into our own hands, but then also to, to, fall, tra- to fall prey to the, to the traps that Satan has set in the midst of this suffering, and then to ultimately lose hope. I mean, I, I think that's the tendency in suffering. It's to, to try to figure out how we're going to fix it, to try to move in and grasp it and take it so that we get to this place where we don't have to deal with it anymore. And in the midst of that, we have this, the, these things that Satan, the enemy, is trying to get us to believe about God and about ourselves and about our situation, and we have a tendency to fall prey to that, and then we lose our hope because we can't really change the situation, and even if we could, there's just something else coming down the pike that's going to cause more suffering, and when we fall prey to Satan's deceptions, we just come to this place where, well, I guess this is just my lot. I'm, I'm hopeless, I'm, it, it, and it brings discouragement. It makes more than discouragement to many. It brings despair, literally, and, and Peter wants to help us understand that there's a, there's a better way to live, 
as we make our way through suffering. And he puts it out in 1 Peter, starting in chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think one of the things that Peter starts off with in this teaching on how to make it through suffering is that a better life really has nothing to do with the situation that you're in. A better life isn't really about the removal of the suffering. In fact, a a better life is embracing what, in fact, God might have in mind for you in the midst of the suffering. Our head of school, Jay Ferguson, writes a weekly blog, and in his uh, Thanksgiving installment of the blog, he, he... makes a beautiful and poignant statement about our suffering. This is what he said in his blog this week. He says, the call or the point of suffering is to let the pain pierce your heart and your soul and to let that pain draw you deeper into a relationship with Jesus Christ, deeper into the cross where the love and compassion and mercy of Jesus can heal you and transform you. That transformation gives you supernatural love. He goes on to say Calvary love. The ability to love and serve and press on and on and on and on. I mean, what a perfect description of what God is trying to do in the midst of your suffering and literally in the midst of all suffering. Peter says from this text that if if you want a better life in the midst of suffering, if you want to get rid of these fleshly tendencies or deal with these fleshly tendencies, then you've got to do three things. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to resist the enemy. And you've got to be confident in your hope. And we're going to unpack that in just a minute. But first, I want to just kind of remind us of the, the origin of suffering. Because while Peter was primarily, and the context of this is primarily about suffering because of your faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, the the principles of humbling yourself and resisting the enemy and staying confident in your hope is, is a true reality for having a better life through any kind of suffering, through any kind of struggle in your life. And so I think it's important for us to just remind ourselves of the origin of suffering. I mean, there, there are basically, in general, about three kinds of sources of our suffering. First, there's the fallen world, the broken world that we live in that produces things like cancer or health difficulties or fires and floods that cause people to have to evacuate their homes. There, there are these things that, that are about because the world isn't as God intended it to be, right? The fallen world, the broken world, and we have suffering because of it. 
We also have suffering because of the the broken people who live in the broken world. Fallen humanity, sinful people who do horrific things against one another. Like beat Christians in China and in Uzbekistan and in the Middle East and in many other places around the world that we've heard about. I mean, terrible stuff. Why does that happen? It's because people are sinful, because they're broken. Why do, why do people who, who live with each other in, around the world, husbands and wives, why do they do harmful things to one another, hateful things to one another? Well, because there's broken humanity. And those broken people in broken relationships produce suffering for each other. That's, that's part of it. And then, finally, it's often self-inflicted. A consequence of some sin that we committed that we now have to deal with. Now, the crazy thing is, is that the, the same principles, humility and resisting Satan and keeping confident in the Lord, uh, work for all those, no matter what it, the source of the suffering is. They all move us to the better life of trying to get to the place where we understand what God's doing through that. So let's unpack these. Let's start first with that, the tendency in suffering to kind of work it out, to take it into our own hands, to, to get rid of the fear, the anxiety, and the pain that we're struggling. A lot of us think that as soon as suffering hits, our first reaction ought to be to relieve it, to figure out a way to get past it, to make our way through it, is to get, get it behind us. And here's what Peter says. He says, I want you to humble yourselves. How? Under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself. Under the mighty hand of God. That mighty hand of God which created the universe set forth a sovereign plan and is the one who is in control of every single aspect of our life and who has a plan for you to be developed into the person that he desires you to be. And he's going to use this suffering to help you become who he wants you to be. So I've got to be humble. Now, what does humility even look like? I think it starts uh, generally not just with being able to, to step back and, and let somebody else go first. I mean, that's part of humility. It's part of humility to listen instead of speak. It's, it's part of humility to, to allow others to, to be ahead of you. It's, it's part of humility to not draw attention to yourself. But ultimately, what is humility? It's a proper view of who you are in light of who God is. Isn't that right? I mean, to me, I, I have to recognize that, that, that the sovereign Lord of the universe... A proper view of who he is has, has created me in his image, has seen me fall victim and prey to the sinful nature, and has seen me in my rebellion, and has seen me into the extent that he loves me, and sent his son for me. Here's this God of the universe who knows me as a sinner. Yes, I was, I was created in the image of God. You were created in the image of God. And sin marred us. And God, in charge of us. See, he is the one who is the king. And my responsibility, my tendency, my, not my responsibility, my tendency is to start to believe 
in pride and in arrogance that I'm the sovereign king and that God is there to serve me, that you are there to serve me. And it's not me. I'm not the only one who thinks that way. We all think like that on some level. We all believe that we are the kings and the queens and that God is there to serve us and that the people that God's put around the rest of the world also have some sense of serving me. I mean, and that's a a whacked view of who we are and who God is. When I understand that God is the sovereign God of the universe, when I humbly submit myself to him, what, what happens? I start to understand that there might be something bigger that God's trying to do in me than just relieve my pain in the moment. God, there might be something bigger that God's trying to do in me, teaching me something about himself, teaching me something about who I am and where I need to trust and what I need to put my trust in. That's what God's doing through suffering. That's what God wants to do. He wants wants the pain that we're going through to pierce our hearts and our souls, Not, not to be pushed aside, not to be acted like it doesn't matter, but to allow that pain and, and, uh, and hardship to pierce us to the extent that we let it draw us deeper into a relationship with Jesus Christ, deeper into his compassion, deeper into his help, deeper into his power. That's what suffering is for. That's what, that's what suffering does if we let it, if we're humble enough. I've been corresponding with a guy who used to be a part of our church. And, uh, and this is a guy who, uh, who had a, a very influential and significant and powerful career uh, serving the, the public sector. And he made a, uh, for serving in the public sector, he made a fabulous living at it, well into a six-figure, high six-figure income. And uh, a few years ago, um, he says in the letter, I, I, I somewhat lost my mind. It somehow got to the place where he thought it was okay to, uh, to cheat on his travel expenses. And over a three-year period, he stole a couple thousand dollars. This is a guy who was making well over $300,000 a year. Stole a few thousand dollars over a... I don't know, 36-month period, and got caught. And uh, he lost his career. His family didn't disintegrate, but that kind of thing certainly doesn't help a family relationship, does it? And now he sits as a Texas Department of Criminal Justice inmate in a prison in South Texas. And uh, as he writes to me and talks to me about that, I mean, I've been to prison to preach. I've never been to prison to live. And, uh, and, and the hardship, the fear, the anxiety, especially for somebody who has experienced the exact opposite of everything that prison is, I mean, it's a... Hardship. Some of you might even know about that because you've spent time there. You know what it feels like to be there. But a month ago, I got this letter from him, and I asked him if I could share 
parts of it with you? And he said, sure. And he says this. He says, um, this is, he doesn't even know we're going through First Peter. And he says, I've leaned. I've had to lean into First Peter 5, 6, and 7, where it says, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And he goes on to say, as I've done that, I've, as I've embraced the consequences of my actions and the place in which I find myself now, there has not been one moment where I didn't feel wrapped in his arms of protection. He goes on to say, it is amazing how God has used me here. He says, and, and finally, he says, I feel this is what I needed for God to get my attention so that I would truly serve him with all of my heart. And I'm reading that through four weeks ago, knowing what's coming today, and I thought I should just read his letter and sit down. Because here's a guy who has begun to let suffering work in him. Yeah, I, I get it, and you might be thinking this because that's what I thought at first. Uh, I mean, yeah, but that's self-inflicted suffering, right? But if he wouldn't have done that, he wouldn't have to go through that. And yeah, absolutely true, right, you got it, and you totally missed the point, right? And I would have. I mean, what he's allowing God to do, no matter how he got to the suffering, to humble himself before the Lord. That meant to, to not have to figure out how he could get himself out of this situation at any cost, to, to lie or to do whatever it would take to get himself out of this cost. No, he, he, he was letting God do the work and recognizing that this just might be good for him. Let me ask you a question. The suffering that you're enduring right now, whatever it is, it's probably not as dramatic as my friend's enduring in the Department of Corrections, right? But let me ask you, if you were corresponding with somebody about your suffering, what would you say? What would, what would your letter be to them? How encouraging would it be to them? Would it be anything other than just complaining? Would it be anything other than just trying to alleviate the situation? Would it be anything other than a plea to help them, to help you get out of this? No, you know, I love it. This is exactly what I needed. What if the suffering you're enduring right now is exactly what you need to be who God is trying to mold you into. What? Now see, the, the problem with that, or the hardship in that, is this next factor. See, we have a tendency, we have a tendency to buckle under the schemes and the deceptions of Satan and start believing that, uh, that, that the, 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 the hardship that we're in is not anything like what we've just described. There's a, there's a course in the U.S. military called SEER School. It's, it's survival, um, evasion, resistance, and escape. And um, the U.S. military puts just a few kinds of personnel through that, pilots and special operatives who are likely to be captured at some point, or not likely, but who, who, whose position could put them at high risk of being captured. And, and what they're trying to do in this multi-week course is to teach these people how to 
survive if they're separated and evade the enemy and if they get captured to resist the enemy and then, and then to work at escaping from the enemy at all costs. You know, in, in some ways, that's, um, that's what we're talking about here with this second call, that we're supposed to resist. We're supposed to resist the enemy that's out there. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, when, um, when these people are put through this course, one of the first things they learn, I'm told, is that even though it might appear in the moment, your enemy is not your friend. Your enemy is not your friend. They will, they will try to uh, encourage you. They will try to come alongside you. They will try to comfort you. And all for one reason, to rip your heart out. To bring you under their loyalty and their allegiance and to give them information. And they will do whatever it takes to convince you that it's good because they, they're connected to you. Because they'll help you. Because they'll comfort you. Because they'll give you what you need. And as soon as they get their information, you know what happens. There, that, uh, that, that scheme, that deception, that temptation falls flat. And so many of us walk through the valley of our suffering, walk through the struggle of our suffering, and we miss the fact that Satan, our enemy, is not our friend. In fact, look what, look what Peter says about this enemy. He's not only not our friend, he is literally looking to destroy you. He is an adversary, in verse 8, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour him. And then he says, resist him. Do whatever you can to resist him. The enemy is trying to break you physically, emotionally, psychologically, and theologically in this case. Resist him. And it's not just a matter of, you know, the toughest one in the room who's going to take all the punishment. Man, it's, it's coming alongside the word of God, allowing the spirit of God to empower you and to have people, the church, like what we were talking about just a little bit ago from the New City Catechism, the church encouraging each other and supporting one another as we walk through these battles. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a Bible study and somebody shares some point of suffering and hardship and then some other well-meaning person offers something that I'd like to call, I don't even know, heresy right? It's this, it's this word of, of comfort. It's this word of, of connection to these people who are really suffering, and they'll, and they'll make a statement that goes completely. It, it seems nice, and it's well-meaning, but it goes completely against the word of God, and, and, I, and, it, and it's heretical, and, and it so often happens that we in the church, we want to hear somebody's pain and suffering and struggle and we want to come alongside of them and say things like you're right you're right you don't deserve that you're right you shouldn't put up with that you're right that's not fair you're right you should get revenge I mean, maybe you haven't heard that in a bible study so blatantly but so many times especially around relationships 
We have this thing called sympathetic heresy that comes in and we want to sympathize, we want to help, but, but we say the wrong things to them. The church is supposed to be there encouraging and strengthening and saying the truth, helping them resist the lies. That's, that's how we do this. The enemy comes in and, and to stand firm against the enemy, we need the word of God, the spirit of God, and we need brothers and sisters in Christ who lead us towards the truth of God and support us in it. That's how we stand firm. Finally, in the midst of all this stuff, if we, if we neglect all that first, kind of first order stuff, um, then we start to lose our hope. We start to lose our confidence. That's our tendency in suffering. And here's what Here's what Peter says about that. Look at verse 10. Be confident. I'm putting that part in. Because after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you and confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What he's saying is um, this hope that you have is the eternal kingdom of God, which begins when you receive Jesus as your Savior and becomes complete, confirmed, strengthened, and, 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 uh, and, and an, an eternal part of you. And the reality of that comes when Jesus comes again in the future to make all things new. And until that time, just like the catechism says, we're here sharing the gospel and giving people a taste of what it means to live in the future kingdom. But until that day, we're in the midst of this suffering. But we have a hope. And Satan, going back to the enemy, Satan wants you to believe that the real hope is the, is the relief of your suffering. My friend's hope is not in the moment that he walks out of the doors of that prison. I mean, what if he never walked out of the doors of that prison? What if you never got out of a relationship that you're in that's causing you struggle and pain? What if, what if you never got past the mistakes somebody else made and put you in a financial crisis that has been a, a, a vice of pressure on you? What if you never get out of that? I mean, is that all there is? Does the suffering just get the best of you? Our hope isn't the relief of our suffering. Our hope is in the future. There's a better life. My friend, it, it took him almost 60 years of his life and it took him to the highest points of a career in his field to the lowest part of where society is. But man, remember what he said? It's just what I needed. I want to be able to say that. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you so much that, um, that you've given us a hope a future. 
and that we live in a broken world that suffering is always going to be a part of, Lord, but you will use it to help us know you better, to help us experience you better, to help us be able to come alongside others better. Please help us in that, God. Please help us to know and trust and believe you and to put our own desires and interests and what we perceive as our needs behind ourselves and trust you with everything. Help us to fight back the enemy, his deceptions, his temptations. So that our hope is not destroyed, but it's renewed day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.